All right. What's up, guys? Uh, welcome back to another episode of Elite Physique University. Um, Kayla, John, and Jason are here, and we have Victoria Felkar on this week um, to talk to us about women's hormones in uh, sport and medicine. Uh, but before we get into all of that, of course, we always review how our week's going. Um, I know we've had, all of us have had a crazy week. So um, Jason, how's moving going? You know, it, it went smooth. Like everyone was on time, blah, blah, blah. But there was just a lot of moving pieces um, moving into this house. So uh, mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm on the, uh, I think, downswing at the moment. So that's good. Um, hopefully that's tomorrow will be... Done. Yeah, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday this week has been a whirlwind, and hopefully tomorrow will feel more like um, kind of settled and just back to my usual schedule. I, I, I get, I get like anxious when I'm not like in my usual schedule. So, like, didn't sleep well last night and yada yada. So, um, but it's all good things. It's all good things. So, yeah, good. Well, thank you again for taking the time to like take a break from moving and just sit on the podcast with us. Um, yep. That's always appreciated. Um, John, how's your last few days going? Pretty exciting. Just signed a new lease. Uh, we're moving fat muscle headquarters into a new building. So we did the math on it. We can do about three times the amount of volume out of this new place. So the goal is to get in there and then try and bust out of the doors there and move to another place. So awesome. I signed a year lease with some options after that. So my goal is to see if I can break out of there in a year, which is tough to do, but that's that's the goal so and i got a really good deal on the place like i'll tell you guys off air what i'm paying a month for it but it's a really good spot um but other than that this friday something exciting i've got a call with the president of a huge company in the food industry that we're trying to partner with to come out with a product where we combine something and i can't tell the details but we combine a a food product with something that we're doing to come out with a an all-in-one product that the industry doesn't really have so pretty excited about that i can tell you guys about that off air as well sorry to tease our listeners but you know other than that it's normal stuff client check-ins got people competing and you know the daily daily grind so i'm pretty fortunate awesome all exciting stuff i can't wait to hear about it um i have had quite a good week um i had three clients sign on so far this week and it's only wednesday so that's awesome um have a couple more consults for the rest of this week um i have a client competing this weekend in figure doing her second show. Um, and then I have three clients getting ready for powerlifting meet, uh, coming up here in three weeks. So that's exciting. Um, competition seasons always fun. And I already have lifters signing up for next spring. So that's always exciting too. Um, but yeah, otherwise my week's been pretty, pretty average besides all that. So, um, but yeah, otherwise, um, on to Victoria, um, if you would want to introduce yourself a little bit, there's a lot there that you could talk about because you're very accomplished. So um, go ahead and just give the listeners a little bit of a background on yourself and how your week's gone. I never know where to start that. My week's been good. Uh, overall, today's been an awesome day too. Uh, definitely love when I'm able to check off all the tasks for the week and it's only Wednesday. So I love it when that happens. Um, but I've actually just been... I'm starting to ramp down all of my consulting work for the year in preparation for Swiss Symposium, which is coming up at the end of October. And if you guys have never heard of it, I highly recommend, highly, highly, it's my favorite event ever. 
academia professionally. Um, and it's going to be actually in Ohio this year. It's a strength training. I don't even know how to describe it. Emporium of a bunch of different individuals from Kairos, physio, OT, PT, to, I mean, the world's best athletes from, well, I mean, Steffi Cohen's one of those both hats oh, okay. on, but then you also have like oh, Ed Cohen and Jim Wendler and um, gosh, I mean, just so many people from across the spectrum of bodybuilding, powerlifting, strongmen. Um, so both your athletes themselves, the practitioners that help support them. And it's just, it's an awesome, awesome event. So I'm starting my prep for that as of this week. So I'm very excited. It's my third year coming, going to it. And like I said, it's just best event. Um, so I've got that coming up and then uh, I'm just grinding on my, my research as, as per usual. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Awesome. That that's super exciting. Um, I've never heard of that event, but it sounds really, really interesting. I'm very familiar with all those people like Ed Cohn, Jim Wendler, um, all that, um, with the powerlifting side of things. So definitely mm. something I'm going to look into. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so today we have a lot to cover with Victoria guys. Uh, we have lots of questions as far as like what goes on with like women's hormones, um, and health related to bodybuilding and sports. Um, so if you haven't followed Victoria, she's done a lot of research in this area, um, in our, in the field of bodybuilding and with just sports in general. Um, so we're excited to get into this. So I guess starting out, like what got you interested in pursuing this field of study, um, around women's health and hormones, um, relating to sports and competition? Mm-hmm. Well, the easy answer is I was a messed up athlete. <laughs> um, so I was a classical ballet dancer going up. Um, I started weight training at 15. Uh, I was kind of at the tail end of my, my whole dance universe. I started at three, did part-time high school competed. So about 15, I was I was peaking in my dance career, but I stumbled upon the weight room um, through, though, trying to manipulate my body uh, as a result of an eating disorder. And that it wasn't actually the love of weight training that got me in there. It was the fact that I lived on the West Coast and I needed a treadmill to run on. Um, and the local YMCA is where I found my place. Uh, but I found the weight room. I was able to support my recovery with my eating disorder. I actually stepped away from dance completely because I just fell in love with training and uh, ended up going into human kinetics, which is kinesiology uh, for my undergraduate degree. And at that time, I also started to have some really weird health abnormalities. I had been put on the pill at a very young age because of um, what would be termed in the medical community as abnormal uterine bleeding. But as I'm sure we're going to talk about, It's actually quite a normal phenomenon, particularly in athletic women, Um, but got put on the pill after only two uh, menstrual bleeds and was on it until the age of 17. And when I went off, I was amenorrheic. And then my body decided it was going to try to start making its own hormones at 18. And when I did that, my immune system shut down. And so I was in the hospital with bronchitis, pneumonia, laryngitis, my cortisol had reached levels that I was being screened for androgen, um, excreting tumors, my voice changed, my thyroid stopped working. Like it was just, it was a mess. And then within three weeks, my cortisol completely dropped to Addison's level, 
And they thought that I was going to have to be on some type of cortisone replacement for life. Meanwhile, my weight changed about 30 pounds. I was hairy. Like I was going, what is, what is, what is this? Um, and nobody could answer me. And throughout this all though, because I'm a very committed individual, I continued my educational pursuits, but also my love of bodybuilding. And I started to notice I could gain muscle really easily strength like an ox, but could not change my body composition. I had fat that just would not budge. Um, my hair started falling out. My eyebrows started disappearing. Like I just was like, there's something else going on here. And luckily my mom was a pioneer nurse practitioner. And she was like, I hear you. I see you. How do we find help? And so that began really this pursuit of being pushed to endocrinologist, gynecologist, metabolic medicine, internal medicine, back to gynecology, back to endocrinology. And it was about nine different specialists. And at the end of each of those appointments, it was, we don't know what's wrong with you. And so as an 18, 19 year old, it was, we don't know what's wrong with you. This might be your new normal. And I was like, no, no, it's not. I'm not okay with this. Um, and during that same time, simultaneously, serendipitously, um, I actually got connected to the infamous John Meadows. Uh, and it was a really happenstance. Like I'm from Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. John was from Columbus, Ohio. Mm -hmm. It was a, a, an individual who saw me struggle and was like, Hey, there's this guy on the forums named mountain dog. I think you should email him. He might be able to help you. And, uh, John took me under his wing. This is when he was still working at the bank. And I was one of like 10 clients and John right away was like, there's something not right here. You need to come see my doctor, which was Dr. Eric Serrano. Yep. And Eric Serrano took one look at me and he was like, Lord, what am I going to do with you? <laughs> and also saw my curiosity and my love. And so my whole intention was going, going to go into uh, medicine. And Eric said, no, you can do so much good if you go into research. Because what you're experiencing right now as a young female athlete, so many other women are going through the same thing and they don't have the resources. And that got me to where I am today. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's crazy. Um, I know for sure, like some listeners are probably um, emulating with that because I certainly did for some of that, because I've also gone through my own hormone issues and stuff. And as a female, it just is like not getting answers is so frustrating um, because I had the same issue with going to doctors after doctor. Like, why am I having such bad acne? I don't feel right. And they're just like, oh, here, try this cream. Oh, here, go on birth control. And it's like, it's not, it's not going to solve anything. So, you know, the things that you've done is like amazing. Um, but I think all of this stems around like, you know, a woman's like menstrual cycle. I think that's the one thing that really determines like when something is off. So what does like a normal menstrual cycle look like for females? Mm -hmm. Great question. Not an easy one to answer because what is normal for me is not going to be normal for other individuals. There's the textbook, the gold standard textbook. And I always like to remind people as we have to ask, where did those ideas come from? And the reality is, is that there is a huge amount of variance, not only in my body's menstrual cycle across my age, but also how I differ compared to other women. And so the amount of variance is massive when it comes to the reproductive health and menstrual cycle. There really is no one size fits all. That idea of the 28 day cycle 
I mean, that, that's been long disproven, long, long, long disproven. Um, and we also know that even hormonal levels, that, that certain highs and lows, there's a lot of fallacy there. Even that cute little, and I always urge listeners or viewers to go on Google and Google like menstrual cycle hormones. And you look up that cute little graph that estrogen and progesterone are flowing and estrogen comes up, it drops, goes into a double hump that's somehow almost the same height as the first hump. And then progesterone comes up in the second half only, but it's evenly matched with estradiol. That, that description is such a fallacy. When we actually look at the data, big studies of hundreds of thousands of women at this point in time, we know that that's not, that's not the case at all. Um, we know that progesterone is actually used on a different scale of measurement. And so it is much higher in the second half when we achieve ovulation. Um, but a lot of women don't achieve ovulation. So, or at least not regularly or sufficiently. So taking that step back of like, what is the menstrual cycle? Well, in its most simplest form, the menstrual cycle is a really complicated dynamic communication between our nervous system, our hypothalamus, our pituitary, and our ovaries, with also some influence of the surrounding reproductive complex, such as the endometrium, the cervix, the vaginal pH. However, it's not a closed loop circuit, meaning it's not just running around in this nice little racetrack between these different elements. There are other things that feed into this and that influence it, just like it also influences other things in the body. You know, socially, and even within medicine, we've always called estrogen and testosterone the sex hormones. The reality is they do so much more than just sex or sexual reproduction or sexual function or sexual characteristics. I mean, when we think about estrogens and estrogens, there's more than one type, um, the, the role that it has in cognition is huge. Arguably, it is on par with its role in reproduction, but we don't talk about it like that. So with that menstrual cycle, we've got that loop. We've got those different systems communicating with each other. And because of how complicated it is and because of how many different dimensions and aspects there are to it, there's a lot of things that can throw it off and that will throw it off, unfortunately. Um, as a woman, we have uh, eggs, whether or not there we have a set number from birth is still, I mean, it's still up for debate. There's more recent research saying that, that that's actually not true. Um, women will continue to develop eggs here at their life force, but those eggs are incredibly important. And the journey that they go on is how we are able to make a predominant amount of our steroid hormones. And so when I say steroid hormones, that would be uh, molecules that say, share the same structure, estradiol, estrone, estriol, progesterone, testosterone, androstenedione, dione, DHEA. So they share mostly the same structural backbone of each other but I don't call them reproductive steroids. I don't call them reproductive hormones. I don't even call them sex hormones because to me, it just doesn't actually accurately represent what they do in our body. So I call them steroid hormones. So with these steroid hormones, um, they get made predominantly in our ovaries by this beautiful process of egg maturation. Um, however, there is communication required from the hypothalamus and the pituitary gland uh, called gonadotropin hormones, specifically luteinizing and follicular stimulating hormone. And these set a certain tempo or tone to how we are able to 
send receive signals to our ovaries. So it's think of it almost like the beat of a drum. And so it beats this drum and that actually helps to tell our ovaries what they need to do and how they need to work. At the same time though, that ovary is creating estradiol and that feeds back to help that drum have the right tempo and have the right beat. And so I always joke around that when the beat drops, AKA estrogen is high enough, then luteinizing hormone will spike at mid cycle only if we have enough estradiol to be able to promote the second phase of that egg maturation, which is the lovely process called ovulation. When ovulation occurs, we make progesterone. Women will make a little bit of progesterone from their adrenal glands, but it is puny. It is very, 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 very tiny. We make most of our progesterone from our ovaries from the process of ovulation. Now, at the end of this beautiful dance of hormones, our progesterone levels will drop, our estradiol levels will drop, and this will signal our endometrium to schlaf, which is the bleed. Culturally, we have always talked about the bleed as being the most important marker of a woman's menstrual cycle. That is another one of those fallacies. We know that women will bleed from their vaginas for many reasons beyond just changing of hormones or representing this beautiful dance of hormones. Um, and so the bleed itself, well, it is a part of the menstrual cycle. It should not define what we consider to be a healthy, regular, normal menstrual cycle. In order for somebody to have a healthy regular, normal menstrual cycle, it needs to be an ovulatory menstrual cycle and not just an ovulatory menstrual cycle. We need to have the cycle length in that first half before the beat drops to be about the same length as what happens after the beat drops or ovulation. So the follicular phase, which is the first half needs to be about the same length of time as the second luteal phase in that second luteal phase we need to also be able to have enough progesterone to not just match what our estradiol is doing, but be for greater than, because that level of progesterone needs to coast us through to our next ovulatory menstrual cycle in terms of our biochemistry. If it doesn't, we can start to throw off our patterns and our rhythms. I think my power just went out, you guys. Oh no. We can no, still- We're, we're back on. You're on my phone. I always plan for this, um, but my computer and my lights and my printer just went off. So, but we're good. Okay. I came back on. Um, where was I here? Patterning. Okay. There we go. Um, so with the other things we look out for is the duration of time between ovulation or bleeds as a marker too. So if somebody's having 42 days between one bleed, but then 82 between the next one, but they're ovulating both those, that might not be normal for the textbook, the textbook might say more like 36 days or 28 days between, but if that's normal for them and nothing else pathological is going on, then we have to take that into consideration. By and large though, you do want to see some degree of a ovulatory menstrual cycle in a semi-consistent four to six week or so period of time with the same 
amount of time between or close to the same amount of time between, you know, plus or minus a few days. Um, you also don't want to see the abundance of symptoms or characteristics that we associate with things like premenstrual syndrome, aka high amounts of bloating, high amounts of cramping, things that disrupt your everyday function in life, elevated acne, changes in digestion, changes in mood, sleep pattern changes, mid-cycle spotting or bleeding, super sore breasts. Now, if you notice, I said disrupting your life. A little bit of symptom or characteristic we expect because why not? Your body's changing its biochemical state. Things will happen. However, when we don't have the right tools, we will have either magnified reactivity, cramps feel worse, or we will have a higher abundance of them. We have, for example, just an example here, cramping. It's very common to happen when somebody has some type of uh, abnormal biochemical state, usually an anovulatory cycle or low levels of progesterone, um, which as a result, we don't have enough anti-inflammatory capacity. We also have higher levels of prostaglandins, which is a inflammatory marker in our actual uterus itself. It does a little dance with estradiol sometimes or estrone, and that can actually cause more cramping to occur. But it's not just about the hormones. And this is one thing that maybe this is the next future of my work is we spend so long focusing on the hormones of reproductive cycles that we have failed to recognize all the other variables involved that feed into and influence how a woman is able to have a healthy ovulatory menstrual cycle. So from the nervous system, I mean, we, I can't tell you how many times in school, like, cause I still did my you know med courses and my undergrad, my master's, my PhD, like it's all about the HPO. It's all about the hypothalamus pituitary ovaries, but it's not, it's the nervous system has to, it's the one that feeds into the hypothalamus and what feeds into the nervous system, the environment, the environment internal in our bodies and external to our bodies. And when things aren't quite right there, if things are driving too hard, high levels of psychosocial stress, uh, insufficient nutrient absorption, uh, other types of uh, biochemical imbalances, whether it's hypothyroidism or anemia, or if it is that you're just a really in a really busy season of life, you're a, let's say a university student that is also working as a side hustle as a trainer. Like that is enough to throw off this rhythm because the nervous system, if it doesn't have the right tools, it's not going to be able to provide the right tools to everything below it. Just like if we don't have the right tools above the endocrine axis or the reproductive axis in our ovaries and uterus, it throws off everything. So there's this beautiful balance here. I mean, I could go on and on and on, but I feel like that could be a whole podcast. So I will stop there for now and on to the next. You, you spurred a, a question that I yeah. have because I'm just going to go on record and say this is the most confusing fucking topic that I will ever, ever try and learn about. And it doesn't keep yeah. me from trying to learn about it, but yeah. you really made my brain hurt in a good way. Um, and I always crave knowledge. So let's, let me yeah. ask you a question when it comes to the ovulation phase of things, because yeah. what I'm getting out of this is you're saying people can have infrequent bleeds and at different times, you know, maybe mm -hmm. 40 days, maybe 80 days, maybe three weeks. 
But the ovulatory phase, as long as that's happening within a certain range, maybe four to six weeks, that's mm-hmm. the most important. Is, 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 am I getting that? Is that basically what you're saying? And then I have a question to kind of follow up. I, I know that's not set in stone, but you're saying as long kind, as someone's, yeah, go kind, ahead. kind of. So what we've learned in the last five years through doing big data studies is that although the perception was that women, when they bled, would always be ovulating. We know that's not true. Women can have a bleed that's an anovulatory cycle, meaning that they either have um, no ovulation capacity or even what's called a silent ovulatory disturbance, which is that they've got lower levels of progesterone than what is necessary to be able to maintain kind of a healthy internal balance. We also learned though, through this big data, that it is not an unlikely occurrence for women to not ovulate every single cycle. We learned that not every egg is going to have the ability, even if all stars align in that individual, not every egg is actually suited to cause ovulatory um, reactions to occur. Also, sometimes those eggs don't burst open with, with, with the LH signaling. So we're still learning a lot. And when you say like, this is the most confusing subject, absolute is, I use chaos theory. So I use quantum physics in my work. That's how confusing this is because it's an open loop, non-linear dynamic system. And that is the only theory that I could actually come up with that wasn't my own. It matched. And, you know, I'm not alone in this world. There's a lot of other individuals that look at different, whether we're talking about the immune system or um, digestion that are starting to recognize that we've always seen it as one plus one equals two. And that's just it's a fallacy. It's not that simple at all. Now, what we can distill from this though, is that ovulation doesn't happen every single cycle. We would like to support an environment though, that would enable it to happen every single cycle. That's the big difference. Is the easiest thing to do then is to use like an ovulation stick and just keep track of that LH spike to see if ovulation is happening? Yeah. So actually, no. And the reason is, is that, for example, if a woman has hyperandrogenic polycystic ovarian syndrome, those test strips mean shit all for us. Uh, We already have high enough LH in our bodies that we're going to flag positive all day, every day. So basal temperature or quantitative basal basal temperature is the way to go. Um, So that would be tracking your temperature via a thermometer that has two decimal places. First thing in the morning before all else, or using some type of biotechnology to support doing that, the OVA, the Maria, like there's a bunch of different temp tracking things like their watches or wristbands or whatever to help support that. And the reason is, is that progesterone is a thermogenic steroid hormone. So it will increase our basal metabolic temperature when we ovulate. Now the rise is relative to the individual. And so after about three plus months, you're going to be able to start to gather that data to see just what is happening there. Then once we have that data, we can do serum testing at the appropriate interval to be able to confirm how much progesterone an individual has between ovulation. So when we started to see this rise and between their suspected bleed, so you go plus five to seven days, roughly after ovulation, plus five to seven days pre-bleed. And you get your labs around that interval of time. And that's going to tell us how high you actually, that's that highest point of that bell curve 
to be able to um, it's called triangulate your data. The other thing that's really important too is that there's certain characteristics and markers we look out for. So for example, cervical mucus and cervical fluid. Progesterone, it's again, another big fallacy individuals have is that when you ovulate, you get this egg white mucus. It's actually not, that should happen before you ovulate. That egg whitey mucus is actually when your estradiol is high enough to support ovulation. Progesterone helps to dry up cervical mucus. And so if you're still having progesterone mucus or pardon me, cervical mucus in the second half of your cycle, but you are showing signs of an increased temperature, that might mean you're not making enough progesterone to stop you from arresting that cervical mucus. So there are breadcrumbs. When we track our cycle, when we track our temperature, and when we track for other signs and characteristics associated with hormonal changes, we can gain a lot of insight into a woman's reproductive health. And that actually acts almost as a report card to tell us how we're doing and what do we need to do. And kind of going back to your other question about ovulation, the big thing that I always try to, I think, resonate with individuals is that sometimes it's not whether or not we actually ovulate each cycle. It's whether or not we're supporting the capacity to ovulate. Interesting question for you. Um, can just to just inform our listeners, what type of temperature spike are we looking for? About 0.2 degrees more or less. So relative to the individual, also whether or not they have thyroid issues, because that also affects their body temperature and or and or are treating their thyroid. So one of the little hacks that is something I actually learned from an OG in this world, and I will, I love this little hack. It's awesome. You actually calculate your average. So you look at a month and from the day one of your cycle, which is day one of the bleed to the last day, right before, you know, the day before your bleed starts, you calculate your average temperature from that. So let's just say you have 30 days. You calculate the average of those 30 days. Okay. Now you compare that. And you go, am I higher than this average in the wow. second half? And by how much? And if I don't see that being higher in the second half, if I see sporadic, probably means I haven't ovulated. Okay. And then how much am I higher than that? That yeah. is, it is a gold little nugget there that I absolutely have found to be in my own work and my own consulting work much more effective than looking for that like specific quantitative level. Okay. Great. Thank you. Welcome. Um, something that you mentioned as being part of um, a factor that plays into our menstrual cycles is the environment in our nervous system. So as like bodybuilders, we know that that is a huge stressor on our nervous system. So, and there are even some of us, you know, who lose cycles during prep and everything. But um, when someone gets into competing, you know, and as they get further along with like getting like more musculature or wanting to go from like, say like bikini to like women's bodybuilding, like along the spectrum there, like, you know, do you tend to see more hormonal issues with that as they go? And like, then with like natural versus enhanced athletes, you know, how does that play into it too? Yeah. So I've been doing this for a while. I know that, I mean, 
this wall is one of four in this office of the data up here. So I've been doing this work a long time. I know what inside out, upside down, backwards. And here's what I can tell you. It's relative to the individual. A woman's menstrual cycle health is the sum of factors from your past and current health. So I'm going to say that again. You're a woman's menstrual cycle health today is the sum of factors from your past and current health. Meaning that an individual can go through the pursuit of being a high-performance athlete and never have an issue. Another individual can go on a vacation and the stress of travel, even though it's for a relaxing purpose, can be enough to throw things off. Why? Well, that's where when when the most important things I would argue is when we end up look at an individual, we have to map their reproductive health over their life cycle um, and not just their reproductive health, but also conditions and influences that that can alter and shift and change it. So with our reproductive health over the life cycle, what we look at is when was the first onset of a bleed or menarche puberty? We have to look at the one year or so before that, because that's the, the foundational. We have to look at what did their first seven years of cycles look like? What were those conditions? Did they get put on the pill two years later? And if they did that during that first seven years, we know then that even if now 10 years later, they're off the pill, things might not have gotten wired the right way. What I call your resilience your menstrual cycle or ovulatory resilience is not quite there. It's kind of like your Jenga tower is missing a few blocks compared to somebody who started that first seven years, all was there. They were fed, they were nourished, they were loved, they were at peace. They didn't have a lot of psychosocial stress. They didn't have unresolved trauma. They didn't have any issues with body dissatisfaction. They weren't having excessive amounts of physical activity or... Uh, other types of health crises. Like there's so much that feeds into this. And so if during that, especially that first around seven year or so after your first bleed, if we see those types of things, we know then that the reproductive cycle is much more likely to get thrown off by other drivers later on in life. Contest prep. I mean, all of it. Cause it's all people go, I mean, my biggest pet peeve in the sporting world is the idea that it's body fat and that body fat is this marker of whether or not you're going to lose your menstrual cycle and that it's a fallacy. I mean, it, I cannot even describe the frustrations I have for this because if you go back in the research into the 1940s, 1950s, 1960s in exercise science and sport medicine, they were well aware it was not body fat. And they said that loud and clear. They're like, it's the sum of all stress. And then all of a sudden in the 19, late 1960s into the 1970s, and I could go in that, I mean, that's a chapter in my research because it's such a crazy circumstances that happened. But what it did is that even today, research is still perpetuating this biased belief. Um, and that it, it's, not, it's not true. What the reality is, is if you have high body fat, it can throw it off. Mm -hmm. If you have ultra low body fat for a long period of time, Typically speaking, that signals that there is going to be some type of issue with like 
free fatty acid, energy um, metabolism, substrate utilization, potential nutrient deficiencies. So it's not just actually the body fat. We have to look at what that body fat represents internally, what's actually happening internally. Some individuals, if especially if they've had low body fat their whole life, and their parents genetically, you know, epigenetically, genetically, it's, that's part of them. They typically won't have the same alterations to their menstrual cycle when under low body fat. Mm. It's the body doesn't necessarily like change that much, especially if we're not supporting it to be okay with that change. I take a really optimistic, I think, approach to female athlete menstrual cycle health. And when I can, you know, work with an individual, and let's just say for an example, an individual 12 years old gets put on the pill, has been an athlete their whole life, trained post-collegiate or trained in, in college. Uh, so I was going to say trained post high school in college. So like, you know, very, very active individual on the pill from 13 to 24 years old, went off, got their cycle, started bodybuilding at 25. I wouldn't expect them to maintain their menstrual cycle bleed during a prep. Why? They haven't built the foundations to actually support having a regular ovulatory menstrual cycle in the best of conditions when we aren't putting in high amounts of physical activity, when we aren't putting in exogenous influences, when we aren't putting in body dissatisfaction and social comparison, when we aren't putting in food restriction and calorie restriction. So if they don't have that foundation there, why would we expect them to have it and maintain it when they don't? That just doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. You can keep talking. Okay. Um, yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. And I think that also means that, you know, during an off season, then they should take that time to establish the menstrual cycle to be healthy going into the next one. Otherwise that can also make things harder. Couldn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, another big thing is, is that by me taking an optimistic point of view, it also means like, let's do what we can for as long as we can to be able to maintain an ovulatory menstrual cycle. And let's also be really um, supportive to try to maintain it for as long as possible. But if you lose it for the last 12 weeks of a prep, we just have to recognize that this is a thing. We cannot ignore it. We need to try to support the best that we can. We need to try to buffer if we're able to, whether that's maybe through the use of an exogenous uh, bioidentical progesterone to actually bring up, because that's often what you see is progesterone levels will drop in an individual because that's a stress response. It's our body needs to have a, almost like an anti-stress state to be able to promote ovulation. And so we can try to support that But then also like, hey, maybe let's not start another prep until you've regained an ovulatory cycle and maintained it for three to six months, Mm -hmm. minimum, depending on their age and depending on, again, all those situations beforehand too. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. I mean, I do a lot of prep with women. Um, Some of the things I've found to help, and I'm curious what your opinion is, um, especially if they've proven to have hormonal issues or just you know, health issues to begin with is um, kind of dieting them with a four week on and then a one week off and raising carbs, pulling back on exercise and trying to get cortisol and stress down. Um, I seem to be able to keep them having their period later into the prep. 
maybe it disappears at four weeks, but then I always make them get it back before they push and start trying to build muscle. That's how I've done it. And it seems to work pretty well. Um, do you have, um, I guess, tidbits or uh, hacks for our, for our audience out there that, that might help um, this in, type, in, in a prep type situation or just a diet situation? Yeah. So one of the things that I always recommend is really supporting the processes around substrate utilization okay. at the cellular level and mitochondrial health, also egg health. So certain types of exogenous supports can be really, really useful, like ubiquinol or coenzyme Q10. We know that is absolutely vital to egg health. So if we know we need eggs and eggs to be in a healthy place to be able to make hormones, and we know that substrate utilization gets altered in a prep condition, that is one really easy way, expensive post-COVID, but really easy way to be able to support our egg health, but also our mitochondrial health, also how our body is perceiving substrate utilization. There's how much ubiqu- I'm sorry, but how much you, yeah. you, you ubiquin all the, I, I always struggle to say that, but you know what I'm asking, how much? Yeah, so, you know, there hasn't been any firm numbers on ubiquinol specifically because okay. compared to say just like your standardized coenzyme Q10, that's what a lot of the research has been on. We've developed ubiquinol since then. So typically speaking, it's that like one to 300 range, which is quite a large range, but it again, relative to the individual and the circumstance. The other thing that has been shown to be really useful too, are things just like having adequate B vitamins, B12 and B9, having adequate melatonin, even if we have to support exogenously having sufficient iron and iron balance. These are things that are seemingly so simple, yet make a profound impact to support our reproductive health. Even if we lose ovulation, they're still going to support reproductive health. Another thing that, you know, me going back to my tangents about hormones is that the the women's health has spent so long on estrogen and progesterone that they've failed to recognize that testosterone is a big part of how our ovaries are able to make estrogen. Like our ovaries need testosterone to be able to convert into estrogen, to be able to cause the serendipitous event to occur. And so, you know, if we think about what happens in an individual when they're in a high regulated state, a high stress state is that it's all cause hormones get kaputs. And when all caused hormones gets kaputs, right? Estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, DHEA, then we now are going to run into a roadblock. It's kind of like a traffic jam, except for we don't have any traffic at all. We just have an absence of things in the mix. Cortisol will elevate because we don't have sufficient progesterone. Cortisol will elevate because we don't have a proper uh, micronutrient balance, or we have the overarching perceived kind of stress states within our body. And so if we can buffer against some of these things, not just on a short-term basis, but on a long-term basis, it may help to make the coast a lot clearer moving forward. I think a huge asset of this process is to track. I recommend that all, and I mean all, I don't care if you have a bleed or not, you need to track because that's data and data is invaluable. We try to apply these very standard generalized notions to people 
you should do X, you should do Y. But we can't because if we're all different and the menstrual cycle is, you know, chaos theory, then all we can do is build our own data and apply knowledge and insight to that. And so like, I cannot express the importance of women who are natural, enhanced, power lifters, body, track, 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 track. And don't just track whether or not you get a bleed, track for ovulation, track for symptoms, whether this is breast pain and where are you getting your breast pain, cervical discharge, headaches, mood changes, sleep disturbances, and fix your shit before you start. Like I just, that drives me nuts when people go like, oh, I started having these complications ever since I started Anabar. And I'm like, no, because when we did your health history, you've had these things for your whole life. You just had them now on steroids. Like we have to fix them. We have to work towards them to the best of our abilities to be able to risk manage appropriately. And that doesn't matter if it's Anavar or just contest prep. We have to be able to be in a really good state first. And what's relative to us. It's easy for me to stand here or sit here and say this. But what I don't talk a lot about because it is really chaotic and confusing is like, I don't ovulate. Naturally, I've, I, I, my body shuts down as I learned at 18 years old. So I have to lean on exogenous support as a result of that. Biochemically, genetically, I've got two sisters that are the same way and a couple cousins. Body just does not like to ovulate. And I, you know, that's a whole nother story for another day. But as a result, I have to you do what I can. And for me, that's using hormone therapy in a strategic, smart way that's for my body my age, and all the other factors that make up me. There's no one size fits all when it comes to this stuff. You, you mentioned Anavar, so I'm going to mm-hmm. ask because my women clients get mad at me, but I won't let them go back on until they get their cycle back, at least like usually two cycles. Um, <sighs> do you think that's the proper way to do it? I mean, it seems just logical to me, but uh, you know, they get mad at me sometimes because sometimes it takes Sometimes it just takes longer and then, you know, we're four months down the road and they're in an off season, but I'm like, it's just not, not good practice. So, uh, yeah. Thoughts on that? yeah, absolutely. I go a little longer than that, okay. uh, depending on the, depending on the person and depending uh-huh. on the circumstance. But for me, like if I look, if I could take it, I had this asked once in a podcast, if you could take out a billboard, what would you put on it to be able to create safe androgen use? Mm-hmm. Women need to maintain the best reproductive state possible. Exactly. Yeah. When you maintaining regular ovulatory menstrual cycles when possible for as long as possible to be able to not just reduce the short-term risks we associated with anabolic androgenic steroids, but also the long-term risks associated with anabolic androgenic steroids and competing itself. We're in a place right now with information and knowledge that it's no longer okay to plead ignorance that you didn't know that unopposed androgens in a female body might not be the safest thing. Because I can say, I have been talking about this publicly since 2016 and probably have like 30 something podcasts. And if you Google female steroids, I think I'm one of the first people that come up as a researcher. So I know because I've done it, you cannot plead ignorance about that anymore. When we think about certain things in male anabolic androgenic steroid use that gets talked about, 
we talk about things like post-cycle therapy. We talk mm-hmm. about things like letting your uh, testicular testosterone production come back. We talk about supporting it on cycle. We talk about all these things. We talk about needing to get your cardiovascular checkups done. We talk about needing to get your uh, blood drawn to reduce hematocrite levels. We don't have those conversations for women. And that is hugely problematic. Grinds my gears, but I'm only one of, you know, and thankfully you guys exist to be able to also have these conversations. Yeah. Yeah, I do. I, I have them all, all the, Kale's a client of mine. She knows. I, yeah. I, <laughs> I was just going to say, yeah, I went from three years of amenorrhea after 10 years on birth control, same thing. Um, Jason helped fix me. And then I learned directly from him about how to do that for others too. Cause like it sucks. And I don't want anybody else to go through that either. And so, yeah, this is all awesome. And then yeah, it is. I was going to say too, like, um, tracking and everything like that. Uh, there's an app, I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's called natural cycles. Um, Mm -hmm. that's the one that I use and it tracks, it comes with like a thermometer to track basal temperature every month. Um, so I've been tracking that way and it's been really, really helpful too in getting mine back. So, yeah, even, even just getting like a, I mean, a good old fashioned date book. And just logging it in the date book and logging things as they come up. Like you don't need to be hyper vigilant and be like, okay, it's like my brushes are okay. You know, no, it's just as these things come up, but at first you have to learn the signs and the cues to look out for. I especially recommend this for women when they are going into that enhanced world, because it also allows us to see about certain other things happening and try to get ahead of them. We spend so long in our community going, women, watch out for clitoral hypertrophy, watch out for voice changes, watch out for hair growth. Those things are the end of a long road. They happen because there's been other biochemical changes that have occurred for much longer internally that you had no idea existed because either your coach didn't tell you and didn't know themselves, or you weren't getting the right data to help us actually understand and get ahead of those things. That's a problem because there's a lot of those side effects that can not necessarily be avoided because they're still, I don't call them side effects. I call them the unintended effects because they're going to happen when we elevate androgens in the female body. And those are unopposed to estrogens and progesterones to some extent, um, but that we can manage and we can mitigate at least at the first sign of trouble or taking like that more just pragmatic approach and accepting that there's inevitable consequences associated with these drugs, just like there are with hormonal contraceptives. And that if we know the inevitable short-term and long-term consequences, then at least we can approach it in a way that makes sense for that individual. I am really sad when I see really, really good competitors have to prematurely retire because their bodies just yep. say no. Yep. And it's not because they don't want to continue. It's that their bodies are just like, I am done. It doesn't need to be that way. Hey, Victoria, I want to jump in here real quick. Mm-hmm. I know we're running short on time and, and Kayla's got a whole bunch of stuff that she still wants to talk to you about, mm-hmm. but I wanted to let everyone know while you were talking, um, 
I went and looked at Swiss Symposium, and we have got a link to that now in the show notes. Um, Caleb's always got all the links to everything, our emails, how to get a hold of you, how to get a hold of us. But I put that in there, and you're Perfect. one of the speakers. That's somewhere people can show up, they can meet you, they can talk shop. So I think that's Where really in Ohio, cool. because I mean, I'm in Kentucky. It's just Elite FTS is one of the promoters. So we're just in Columbus. Oh, we're in, we're in right. Easton at the Hilton. Okay. Right. It's the first time in the U.S. too, which is pretty cool. It's usually in Mississauga, right. just outside Toronto. Um, but this is the first time ever it's going to be in the U.S. and it's going to be in Ohio, which I love because I'm in Detroit. So it's nice and close. Yeah. Uh, but it's also just such a beautiful community of athletes in from the Ohio crew. So it looks like early registrations up until October 7th. It looks like $4.99 a ticket. And can you That's say okay. the topic that you're speaking on? Can you put that out? I sure can. Okay. Do I remember the title though? Well, it, no. Just, <laughs> just, just a um, tidbit. Yeah. So one of the things, so Ken Kanakin is the organizer originator. He is the grand chief of all this stuff. Amazing human being. His most important thing with Swiss is he wants people to have practical information that they can apply with their clients on Monday morning after Swiss, which is hard when you're somebody in my boat where you're trying to actually have to create that foundational knowledge. But this year I'm coming at it, my talk in a totally different way. And I'm going to be presenting a new playbook for female athlete health. And what I mean by playbook is that I'm going to walk you through how I look at three different case studies. Um, and those case studies are case studies that I think we all run into, whether as women, as athletes, as coaches. So the first one is um, a performance athlete that has menstrual cramps, premenstrual symptoms, and is worried because her cycle start date lands on the same date as her next powerlifting competition. The second one is on a performance athlete who's in her early twenties is amenorrheic, goes to her physician and her physician uh, tries to put her on the pill. And she's worried about how is that going to impact performance? And the reason why the physician tells her she needs to be on it is for bone health. And the last one is your mid-30s physique competitor that switches coaches before she's about to start prep for a national show that she's qualified for. She's only a few weeks post end of last season has come to you because her weight has shot up and she's losing her hair. But after you start to talk to her, you find out that she's got abnormal bleeding. She's got insomnia. She's got way more happening and wants to start prep again. What do you do? <laughs> Our coaches are going to for me that. and what I do, the four ninety nine is worth the admission and then whatever else comes along with it. Yeah. Um, what date is that? Looks like October. I've got it up right here. It looks like it's in late October. I think yeah. it's the 28th and 29th possibly. Let's see if I don't have my son. Sorry to sidetrack there. Our 29th and 29th and 30th. Yeah. I have an event that weekend. Otherwise I'd be like, yes, hundred percent going. Well, there is also Swiss online. So Ken actually has both access points for, you can either just purchase like one year, say Swiss 2018s, all of their footage. Or he also has like Swiss flex, which is like the last 20 years of Swiss. Wow. And so people who've spoken there before are guys like Charlie Francis, which if you're in the coaching world, 
you should know who Charlie Francis is. Charles Poliquin. Yeah. Lou Simmons. Like we, it, it is the mega stars of the foundations of strength and conditioning, powerlifting, strength sports, bodybuilding, physique, all of that stuff. And, when do you and think it, your topic would be available? I can find out. I don't okay. know. I can right. ask Ken. I have um, my son that weekend, so I, I, I'm not going to be able to come. He's eight. <laughs> but yeah. I, I want to hear your talk, so. That's that's the, you know, that's the plan. And I'm going to keep it on my end as one of the things. I'm almost on my doctorate. Thank God. Um, and then I am going to be working out of the university systems, and I'm going to be just doing this full time. So I'm going to be able to have the ability to do more work professionally, be able to do more talks. I mean, my husband is a podcast producer. He runs Think Big Bodybuilding Media. So I have all the tools. I just don't have the time right now. And um, including, I, I mean, I've got a bunch of material already together for eBooks and resources for women. It's literally just getting them packaged yeah. up and out. Yeah. Cool. All right. That's going to be really helpful. Um, yeah. Count me in for next year. Uh, Cause that is definitely something that I want to go to. So it happens every two years. So maybe the next year, but when I get out and get to start doing my own speaking. Oh yeah. Send us hard. We only have an hour. <laughs> There's only so much I can do in an hour. If you give me four hours, I can, yeah. it will be like going to town. So <laughs> and you're, you're certainly someone that we'd like to include. We, we have multiple speaking events that we mm -hmm. own. Jason owns the, the PEC. We do elite physique university. Mm -hmm. I've got the physique summit. There's multiple different ways. We'd love mm -hmm. to talk to you about being a speaker as well too. So absolutely. Yeah. You know, we can only do better if we all join together. Correct. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. No, this was awesome. Um, I guess to wrap things up, like what's the mm -hmm. best way for people to get a hold of you or see more of your information? Um, I can link it all in the show notes for everyone too. Um, but yeah, best way for that. It's a, it's a great question. I don't know if I know that myself these days. Um, I don't go on social media often. And if I do, it's usually pictures of my dog, but still go on there, follow me. Cause that will change once I'm done defending in December. Um, so I do post things once they come out though, on my social media, my social media also gives you links to my website. My website is just victoriafelker.com. And I do my best to post every single podcast video event that I've ever been on, on my website. So people can have really easy access points to all of that. Um, that's like, that's the best way also to contact me through my website. Um, so just victoriafelker.com. My social media is exactly the same thing. And I always just ask people to give me a grace period until I'm done my doctorate. Cause, uh, this is a hard topic as a researcher to, to talk about <laughs> succinctly. Oh yeah. No, that's awesome. Um, you thank you so much for coming on today. Um, yeah, I think you. our listeners got Absolutely. a lot of good info. Um, and we're can't have can't wait to have you back again. So um, Absolutely. thanks, guys. Um yeah. we'll, thank you. That was great. I think we will see everyone later then. See ya. All right.